0: This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors, exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello everyone, it's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 151, and today I sat down with Allison Conrad, the co-founder and CEO of Array. Dubbed the wrinkle cream of hair care, Array is the first functional beauty brand to target aging hair with a proactive, science-driven approach. Array focuses on slowing and repigmenting gray hair with the added benefit of thicker, fuller, and healthier hair. Allison shares her story from growing up as a kid with dreams of becoming an orthodontist to working in merchandising at Coach to starting her first company selling skirts in 2004 to becoming the president of Blushington to partnering with her hairstylist Jay Small to launch lingerie in 2021. We talk about why people develop gray hair, how our scalp ages six times faster than our faces, and why she decided early on that corporate life wasn't for her. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoseo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Allison. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm super excited to hear your story in building a ray, the a wrinkle cream of hair care. I mean, I'm super excited to hear how you came up with this idea, how you built the business. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So, where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? So I was born in Tucson, Arizona. And then when I was seven, we moved to Pennsylvania. I lived there for three years. And then Where in we, uh, PA? We lived in, oh my God, Valley Forge area. Oh, I think. or the battle of Valley Forge. There's so much history. Yeah, I
0: I grew up in Delaware, so not too far away.
1: And how long were you in Valley Forge? Just for a few years. And then we moved to San Diego when I was 12. And so I call San Diego essentially home. And my family still lives there. My parents, my sister and her family live there. So yeah, we moved around a lot growing up, which was challenging, but I think also shaped so much of who I am today. Why I'm did you guys move around so much? Yeah. So my dad is a doctor and he was seeing patients. He worked for the hospital in Tucson and was actually teaching medical school at the university. And my dad is a bit of an introvert. And so I don't think seeing patients was really his jam. And he wanted to go work for a pharmaceutical companies. So he took a job at a pharmaceutical company in Pennsylvania. That's what brought us out there. But my mom is from New Mexico and the cold was just, it was brutal. Nobody really liked it. So um, then he took a job at actually a a pharmaceutical startup in San Diego, which is funny because my dad is a really risk averse person as most doctors are, but he took a bit of a risk and and worked for this startup, which I didn't realize growing up, you know, you, you sort of don't, Pay right. attention to those things, or don't really fully understand them. But reconnected on that, and his ability to take that risk and going to San Diego, and then he actually ended up working for himself. So now he is a, a pharmaceutical consultant and works for larger pharmaceutical companies, mostly on cancer drugs. So oh wow! And what about your mom? Yeah. What does she do? My mom's a dietitian, so she is also in the medical scientific world. They they met in residency for both of them, and my sister. I have an older sister and she is a doctor. She's a pediatric ER doctor. So I'm a bit of a black sheep in the family until it all came back full circle. And I work with my parents with Array. So for a That's very crazy. long time, I think they were like, what are you doing? Like, What is- Did you job? want to be a doctor <laughs> when you were
0: younger? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Yeah. So I, I kind of- felt like I had to be a little bit because of my upgrade. Nobody was forcing it, but it seemed like the natural stuff. So I wanted to be a orthodontist actually for a very long time. And then I was like, maybe I'll be a comedian. That seems like it would be, I was always sort of the goofball and in class and stuff, but I did not do that. Thankfully, that that seems like a hard. Did you do stand-up comedy career. though? Did you give it a go? No, no, no. I just was like, I would like make jokes with family and friends. I'm very sarcastic, and like humor is a bit of a defense mechanism. I think, and I always learned to like deal with things with humor. But no, I I never took it actually very seriously. But I have mad respect for comedians, especially female. I really comedians.
0: want to ask you to tell a joke, but I also don't want to make you oh, feel god. bad and put you on the spot.
1: Oh my god, I'm going to tell you one that my six-year-old came home with it on friday so okay. That's a okay we're, we're stealing like, it from your six-year-old, six-year-old. Yeah. okay okay knock knock who's there i did up a... i did
0: up who you did a poo
1: oh my gosh that's hilarious <laughs> so bad so bad i can't so wait till my kid so comes home with knock knock jokes it's actually it's like the greatest thing i mean when once your kids are talking. And inter- I mean, it's literally the best thing ever. And you have to write down all the things they say because it's precious. but Hilarious. Oh, my gosh. So yeah.
0: you maybe wanted to be a, a comedian back in the day. You were thinking maybe you'd be an orthodontist. <laughs> Anything entrepreneurial stick out when you're a kid looking back like, hey, that was kind of entrepreneurial.
1: Yeah. I mean, I did the whole lemonade stand stick, which, you know, I feel like almost every kid does. I tried to sell rocks at one point living in Tucson like that didn't really go over so well. Yeah. So I think I dabbled in those types of things that all kids do, but didn't really fully understand entrepreneurship or that that was like a path I could take until years post-college even. So, yeah, so it it wasn't something embedded in me as a child. And I also think just because my parents, that wasn't their world. So they didn't know to like expose me to that necessarily. Interesting. I feel like, you know, my dad was a
0: architectural photographer. He actually did wedding photography Ooh. as well when I was really young. And I, I think I just never that's viewed so that. Cool. I didn't know that that was entrepreneurship at the time. Yes, And it's yes. funny how yes. later on in life, you learn, you're like, oh, actually my dad was an entrepreneur. <laughs> I didn't even really right. put it together yeah. until I started meeting a lot of other entrepreneurs and wow. seeing how all of the other types of businesses there are that you can build as an entrepreneur. Right. That, yeah, no, I think it's funny. so cool.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, that's similar to my dad. Like I didn't really fully appreciate him going out on his own when I was 16 and and creating this consulting company. That was a risk, but you know, a calculated risk. He already had clients sort of lined up and knew what he was doing. But yeah, it's so funny. I think too, when you become a parent, you have a different perspective on your parents and and you kind of want to learn more and dig into it. And and you realize they're whole people, right? (laughs) Right. Not just your parents.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly they're flawed in their own ways. Yeah, sure. We all are, right? Yeah. So you kind of look back, you did the lemonade stand, you did some other things and you realize entrepreneurship was maybe something you could be interested in later in life. But I guess before we get there, what were some of your early jobs? What were some of the things that you did do early on, maybe early internships or jobs that you did?
1: Oh my gosh, I feel like I've been working since I was 11 or 12. I mean, I babysat. That's what you could do sort of locally. And then I worked at a party shop was my first job when I was 14 15 my parents would drive me and then I worked at a yogurt shop which is hmm. this is the, the 90s so right. yogurt was like really really cool and in vogue like, and I would come with, like well it was a local chain oh, okay. so it wasn't it wasn't a yeah it was locally owned by this family and my sister had the job before me and so it helped me get this job and I would bring home just like Gallons of yogurt. They would let you bring you know, home. Is now I think back. I'm like that is disgusting. I can't believe how much yogurt I consumed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then I I worked at J Crew. I was like their youngest cashier at age 16, <laughs> which was very fun. And I liked the discount and getting fashion. And that's actually sort of what brought me to my first job out of college was at Martha Stewart. But then my second job was at Coach. So I did have an interest in fashion when I was young. So it was yeah. it was fun to do the, the mall job. Yeah. I think like as so many
0: people on the show who grew up during that time, they all had jobs at the mall. I had a job at the mall too. I yeah. worked at Express. Yeah. You know, I was like their top yes, salesperson at Express, even though I wanted to be the cashier. They're like, Nope, no, no. You're staying on the floor and you're going to sell all the jeans. and.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a different skill set. Like, yeah. I mean, seriously, like it's hard. And when you have like, commission driven and that was like a little too much pressure for me. So I enjoyed the <laughs> just handling the money and the numbers. <laughs>
0: I thought it was fun to be creative and try to dress them up, you know, like, oh, you like that? Well, maybe yeah. you like this too. And this and this and this and this. And I was like, increasing that order size <laughs>
1: as much as I could. Oh, my God. I love it. So you worked at Coach. What did you do at Coach? So I worked in marketing and then I, I transitioned into merchandising for, for handbags. And it was a very, very cool job because it combines both creativity and numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really like analyzing business and then helping to inform the creative process and how you design based on what sells. Mm -hmm. So I really loved that. I loved combining, I am a bit of a left brain, right brain person. So it was a really fun, fun job intense. Coach is a very intense place to work, especially then it was such a big business. But I'm really glad I did it. I also realized corporate life was not necessarily for me. And so I think I think that was just a good lesson too as you're young, you're figuring out I think you're you're expecting to figure out what you want to do in life but I think you figure out maybe what you don't want to do too right. right and and narrowing it down through that process. So
0: right, that's so true. And where were you when you were working at coach?
1: Where are you living? I was in New York. So we, yeah, right. so I went to Duke undergrad and then I I stayed on the that coast and and moved to New York. Martha Stewart was my first job for a little bit and then transitioned into coach. My friend was working for the CEO At the time. Yeah. And it was on the West side. It was, they, they moved offices since, but it was like on 11th Avenue. I mean, you had, I had to take like two different buses and walk. It was like a trip to get to these corporate offices. Yeah. And they've moved. They've, they're in a different location now, but yeah. And 11th fun. Avenue was pretty sketchy too. Yeah.
0: So depending you what, know, so sketchy. Yeah, depending what yeah. era you were in New York at that time.
1: So sketchy.
0: It was pretty sketchy yeah. over there.
1: Yes. I, the only lunch place was Subway. So right. that was, I was like a few days a week I'd go to Subway and that was just like a big treat. So <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And so then after coach, what was it about that Corporate lifestyle that you realized that wasn't for you,
1: yeah. It was a lot of the unnecessary meetings and the like approval process to get things done just felt so archaic, although now I can appreciate I mean, it, was a, it went from a billion dollars to two billion dollars in the three years I was there, right? So it was a hugely fast really growing company that mm-hmm. had to have structure and organization and layers. But being a very low person on the totem pole, it felt very frustrating. I didn't have a lot of agency over anything I did, right? I had to do a lot of these reportings and work that just felt like work to just do work at times. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot has changed since then. I think people are now realizing you don't need to have all these meetings all the time that are ineffective and don't really move the needle. So, but it was a hugely important learning experience for me. I think everybody should live in New York at some point in their lives and everybody should work for a big company.
0: Well, I don't <laughs> know about the big company piece. I haven't done that before, but I definitely lived in New York and that is a place Ugh. for sure, especially when you're first starting out in your career. I mean, I don't know so yeah. much now if it matters, but back in our day, that was like, I mean, one of the best decisions yeah. I ever made was moving to New York City oh, in totally. my 20s. And living I think it up. gives
1: you grit. It does. Yeah, yeah. It does. You just gotta like deal with so many things that I mean, living in tiny places, navigating the subway, figuring out how you can survive in this place that's so competitive and intense. And yeah, I mean it's cost prohibitive now, yeah. m- much more so than when I was there. But yeah, it's a special place.
0: Yeah, you have to hustle to survive. So if you don't have the hustle, you'll get spit right yeah. out.
1: <laughs> a lot of people don't last yeah. very long. Yeah.
0: If you last over like three five years you've yes. figured it out. You're you're good. Yeah. But a lot yes, of people I don't leave under five. three years. It's like, <laughs> you didn't really, couldn't
1: really cut it, could you?
0: I'm just kidding. <laughs> nope. nope.
1: So what did you do after coach? So okay. So around this time I had my own skirt business on the side that was side hustling before side hustling was a term people Typical used New I was doing it as a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. I was I uh, somebody asked me I so my mom taught me to sew. So I would sew my own skirts out of interior design fabric and somebody on the street said, hey, you know, where'd you get that? And I was like, oh, I made it. Oh, can you make me one? I was like, well, I guess so. And so I started a website and was only selling what I create is all custom made. So I didn't have whole inventory. I had seamstresses to do the, the sewing eventually and was really sort of learning how to be an entrepreneur, but never really thought of it because I thought of it as a hobby, right? It wasn't how mm-hmm. I was making money it was just sort of something fun that I was exploring. And this was 2004. So just the start of websites, people weren't really buying online. And again, around this time, I had met the founder of Bonobos through a friend, and he was launching his pants business. And so I was seeing that and, and realizing like, oh, maybe this entrepreneurship thing is something I could eventually pursue. And he had just gone to Stanford Business School. And so was telling me about that program, and I always thought I probably sh- should go to graduate school just because of my parents spending so much time at graduate school. And so I did go to Stanford, which was, you know, a hugely pivotal moment in my life and an amazing experience. And you can't really learn entrepreneurship, I mean, ish, you have to sort of learn it by doing, but mm-hmm. it did give a lot of just great foundational experience and obviously connection to peers and, and the network and everything. So, yeah, it was, it was a Big turning point in my life,
0: right. So you decided to get your MBA from Stanford, and yeah, what was the experience like, and what
1: did you do after school? So the experience was amazing. I mean, you're just with an incredibly smart group of people who are all also down to earth, like everybody, maybe not everybody, but most people felt like they had imposter syndrome. so that's a good sign when you're you all feel like, do I belong here? I, I can't believe I'm a part of this group. and it was it was really amazing. I mean, I, I learned so much. It was hard. I had to catch up to a lot of my peers who had been in iBanking banking and management consulting. And that's just a very different skill set. My finance course was extremely hard for me, but I needed to learn these things and have that experience. Unfortunately, I was paralyzed during business school, which was not something I thought would happen to me, obviously, what do you but mean? I had routine risk. I had wrist surgery. For, I had a ganglion cyst in my wrist and I couldn't do yoga. And I was like, I'm, I should get that removed. I'm in school in like Stanford Hospital. Seems like a good place to do that. And they damaged two of my nerves in my brachial plexus in my shoulder. So I couldn't lift or use my right arm for, they didn't know if it was permanent. It wasn't, it lasted six months. So I did get it back, but I graduated without being able to shake the hand of the person giving the diploma. It oh was a God. really awful experience. Yeah. Again, I think these are these moments in life where at the time it's so traumatic and awful. And, but you learn from it. And you and if you can get through things like that, it just brings you back on the other side. But I graduated without a job because I was like, I can't go to an interview and not be able to shake the hand. You know, like people are going to judge me for that. And I was obviously very depressed, too. I'm very worried about whether I would get my strength back and my arm back. So. Yeah, it was a, it was a dark time. Stanford was really great about it in like accommodating me and, and helping and having the support system in place there. But yeah, it was it was a doozer for sure.
0: Oh, my goodness. And this was towards the last six months of your yes. studying there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when did you decide to start looking for a job? So you graduated, you didn't have anything yet. And you're just kind of focused on recovering, yeah.
1: healing. Yeah. Yeah. I was still talking to people. like I, I, And this was 2010. So this was not a great market to look for a job. Anyways, it was not the height of the recession, but close thereafter. And so I moved to LA. My husband now, boyfriend at the time, works in TV. So he was in LA. We met in New York, but he came out here. And I was living with him and looking for jobs and, and just trying to talk to people and network mostly in like fashion. But then I ended up in beauty through a business school classmate of mine, who had a friend who was talking about starting something. And so I ended up writing the business plan for this company called Blushington. So I didn't come up with the concept, but I met the founder and the in main investor in the company. And that was a really great way for me to start something by starting small, by writing the business plan and, and you know helping to formulate the idea for it. And then by that time, I had recovered my strength and ability to use my arm. And so they asked for me to launch the company and run it. So that was a unique experience and brought me into beauty. Nice.
0: And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot, and it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill Perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped a female founded luxury fitness brand with a no pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good. You can place their U shaped weight called the U bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now, let's get back to the show. And so, yeah. you were what, president of that company? And then, how yeah. long were you there? And how was that experience? Because that's really some significant startup experience there.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, I was there for a little over three years. We launched three brick and mortar stores while I was there. And it was really the concept was we we sent the dry bar of makeup. So we worked very closely with the folks at dry bar who are amazing and co-located with the idea being, okay, you're getting your hair done. You are most likely then also need to get your makeup done, especially if you're going to an event. And so, yeah, it was, it was really fun. It was building the concept again, creating a new category, a new behavior in folks and working on getting brands to get behind it, which was really exciting. And we got some amazing brands who believed in this concept and elevating like the makeup counter experience past just going there and being like, hey, can you give me a free makeover and I'll buy a lipstick? And so this was a a new way of approaching makeup. And I did not know a ton about makeup. I didn't even actually really wear makeup before joining Blushington, but now I can do a pretty mean winged eyeliner so it got some actual skills too through the process yeah <laughs> on makeup but yeah it was really fun it's also a hard business in the fact that it is events driven right and it's a f- brick and mortar physical location you have to go to obviously covid was a tough time at that point i was not involved in the company day to day but yeah it was it was really fun to just create something that never existed before and get people to get behind it and makeup artists loved it because they could have a more steady job instead of just like going to weddings or award seasons and like these one-off events, but really having a, a more stable income and being able to use their creativity more. And so, it was, yeah, it was an amazing, cause I'm so glad that I did it. I mean, my focus in at the GSB at Stanford was not brick and mortar, it was D2C. And so that's what then ultimately brought me to my next job, which was in direct-to-consumer. And that's what I'm doing now with Array. So that was a tough decision to take that moment and say, like, okay, I didn't really want to focus on retail, and I think omnichannel is a huge opportunity, but I did want to go back to the focus I had in my graduate school, which was D to C businesses.
0: And so, where did you go from there to get that D to C focus?
1: Yeah, so I joined a company called Erin Condren, and so it's the founder's name is Erin Condren. It's her business, and she it was a planner and stationery and accessories business. And so again. I'm not a planner user, so it was me learning that space and realizing how potentially big that space was, too. It was a pretty decent-sized business when I joined, all just direct-to-consumer, and I worked on bringing that into Omnichannel, so launching in Staples and Amazon and developing their own retail stores. So that was a really fun experience in the early D2C days where we didn't even do paid advertising which was incredible. It was all growing just organically through word of mouth and through this community of planners and influencers at the time that I don't even think we called them influencers and these micro influencers. And so that was a really fun experience with early D to C and and realizing how you can scale. Now it's changed so dramatically. Oh my gosh. I mean, you couldn't replicate that now.
0: Yeah. So how did you come up with the idea for Array? Where were you? What was that aha moment? What made you want to start your own company?
1: Yeah. So it very much was a personal issue where I saw my first gray hair. My co-founder is my hairstylist, Jay. We've been seeing each other for nine years. So we know each other quite well. And so I went to him and was like, you know, what do I do about it? And he's like, what do you mean? What do you do about it? You can't do anything. Like you wait until it's too much gray and then you dye it but like wait as long as you can because knowing you you're not going to want to come in here every three to four weeks and you know it's not cheap and potentially probably not great for your health so like maybe don't do that now and I was like okay I won't but then I wanted to do something about it right so I really went into research mode of figuring out why we go gray and I assumed it was going to be 75% genetics, but it's not. There's one gene that causes gray hair that scientists have identified, and it counts for about 30%. And so I was really fascinated by the fact that nothing really existed as a proactive solution for gray hair and aging hair. It was really much more reactive. And I was worried about the toxic chemicals in hair dye. And around the same time, my dad, who is a pharmaceutical consultant, he oversees cancer studies, he came across an article linking increased risk of cancer from at-home hair dye use. And so all these sort of factors came together and and Jay has a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit himself and was talking about starting different, like he was talking about a towel line and he had some other ideas. And we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, this might be our idea. Like This might be the thing that we can do together. And so we got the team together. His wife is our creative director and we had a a chemical engineer and an ops person. And we sat down in January of 2020. And we were like, let's side hustle this guy. Like this seems like a good idea. Let's just pursue this. And then obviously the world fell apart the next two months. And Jay wasn't able to see clients anymore. So this was a moment in time that was actually fortuitous for us to focus on launching. And so we launched a year later in 2021 with the supplement. My mom who's a dietitian, obviously helped with that. And we have again, the chemical engineer, cosmetic chemist, my dermatologist is informally advising us. So we have a lot of the medical and scientific community that we look to in developing all the products. And yeah, it seems cliche because it wasn't like an aha moment, literally when I saw my first gray hair, it was it like that started sort of a few different aha moments, which brought us to this place.
0: That's awesome. And so you first wanted yeah. to launch with the supplement. What was the purpose yep. of the supplement? What were some of the tests that you guys did to prove that that supplement works?
1: Yeah. So, in this research of, okay, if genes are only accounting for about 30%, what are these other factors that are causing gray hair? And a lot of it is attributed to oxidative stress and then things that are lacking in people's diets and nutrients. So, that's why we started with the supplement in replacing those vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and supplementing the body so that it can be set up to preserve pigment cell turnover, stimulating melanin, and all the factors that you can do internally. And then we studied it on Jay's clients. So by this point, he could see people again. And so we asked if anybody was interested in taking the product. And we got a group of about 30 people who did want to take the product. And we basically took before and after photos, had them report back on their amounts of gray hair. We counted gray hairs. But then we actually were very surprised by finding that It helps with thicker, fuller hair, shinier hair, healthier hair in general. And so the focus was gray hair. But what we found is this actually helps with all elements of aging hair, just like aging skin, right? Like there's not just one thing that happens. You get wrinkles, you get age spots, you get less elasticity. There's all these things that happen to your skin. Same thing for hair. In fact, the scalp ages six times faster than the face. And so we're not doing enough for our scalp health and helping to slow that aging process. so I really think the the future of hair care is more like how skincare was ten years ago, and people didn't use wrinkle cream on wrinkles. You use wrinkle cream before you get wrinkles. You use Botox before you have wrinkles, right and so these are all proactive measures that we believe and and we think should be done on hair
0: That's so interesting because yeah, I definitely I think most people just assume well. Gray hair is genetic and I'm getting older. So there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to have to deal with it, cover it up, do whatever I can. But you're saying 70% of the reason why people go gray is actually not genetic. It's diet, stress. What else is it? A
1: lot of smoking. Smoking is horrible for gray hair. That's an oxidative stressor, UV, just like, you know, it, it affects your skin. It affects your scalp. There's pollution too, stress. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that still are a bit of a gray area, pun intended. Like this is a part of science that hasn't really been taken seriously. And so just now we're seeing more research and interest in gray hair as more of a sign from the body of things that are lagging, not just necessarily like this inevitable thing you just have to deal with. I mean, it is really... Happening to all of us, since like 100 percent of us will grow gray at some point in our lives. But it's trying to do something about it and having a little bit more control and feeling like you're doing better things for your body to set you up to look better. And I think it's like I joke with my sister because she's an ER doctor, pediatric ER doctor, so she's literally saving lives. And I'm like, we're not saving lives over here. But then I take a minute and I'm like, wait a second, you know, not necessarily, but we are actually helping people to feel better, have more confidence, potentially less cancer from the toxic chemicals that they could be using. And so we we are trying to help people in a way that's maybe you know not not as significant as she's doing, but we're trying to make our difference
0: definitely. And so, Of that 70% you mentioned with diet and UV light and pollution and all these things, I know you guys are creating more than just supplements for helping people with their gray hair. How did the other products fit into providing a solution here? I know you have shampoo and conditioner and a few other things. Can you kind of speak to why those products were developed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's an inside out, outside in approach. So just sort of like how you think of acne routines, this is helping from the inside and out. So the topical products that we use, it started with a serum and we use a clinically effective peptide as well as our unique combination of antioxidants. It's a patent pending formula. And it really is meant to get into your scalp, stimulate your melanin. If you have melanin left in your roots, that's the key factor is you do still have to have some melanin. It can help stimulate that and we call it repigment hair. We don't use the word reverse cuz that kind of connotes an old school way of thinking of I have a whole head of gray hair and I'm going to take something and like next month I'm going to have all black hair again. And it's like that's not feasible, but this is for 0 to 30% gray. So early stages of graying and it's to help stimulate that pigment and slowing the process too, right? So as if you can keep the pigment, it's also preserving that. And so yeah, it's a it's a very unique approach to this problem and people are always like well what's the most effective products to use like you now have a lot of products and i i say that like, that's not necessarily the best way of asking it. it's more of like what are you more apt to use more so like if you're not a pill taker don't sign up for a subscription to a pill that you're not likely to take right but if you use shampoo and that's an easy way of you integrating it into your process then get the shampoo right so i th- i think it's also we're trying to meet people in their lives and their habits and make this something that they can easily add to their routine. Because again, like skincare, you have sometimes like a 10-step routine that you use and then hair is just like, oh yeah, shampoo and condition it. Well, that's it. There's more that we can be doing for the hair, but we... Need to integrate that into our process in our lives.
0: So, you're saying this is not for the person who's maybe like 50% and above gray hair. You're saying this is for the person who's zero to 30% of their hair is gray. And this helps them slow down the process and preserves color. But, in terms of yeah. reversing, since that's the word everybody assumes and probably wants yeah. it to happen that way. Yeah. Is there any amount of that 30% that does get reversed over time? And how much time does it take if so?
1: Yeah. So, two answers. So, the first part is that what we're seeing is actually people who do have more than 30% gray do see results. So, we're not saying like, don't take it. We want to manage expectations. So, we don't want to over promise and under deliver. In fact, we want to under and overdeliver. deliver. But we have a woman, Michelle, who's been using our products and, you know, has been going gray since her teens. And, has noticed her hair shades have gone darker, right? And she's like starting to see some of her brown come back. And for her, that's great. She's not expecting to have her whole hair turn brown, but it's improving her texture. It's improving her quality of her hair. And she's seeing it change shades. And And so we also want to address the coarseness, the dryness of gray hair, like it does change. And nobody's really addressing that in the hair care world. And so we want to be that solution for those folks too. And then on the proactive side of how much repigmentation is possible, everybody is different. And we have the clinical stats on our our site of how much you can see, but some people can see up to 80% repigmentation and it takes a minute, it takes three to four months to start seeing results. And we see the best results coming in at like six months to a year. And that's because hair takes a while to grow, right? So it's, you have right now about a fourth of an inch to half an inch of growth in your roots. And so you have to wait for that to come through the scalp because that hasn't been affected by the products yet because it's already, it's already been established. And then you have to wait, your hair grows a half an inch every month. And so you can imagine it, it takes a second to see start seeing that repigmentation and start seeing the results from your hair. But the topical products can also just help, again, the other parts of your hair that are the softness, it gets glossier, like there's other attributes to your hair that you can start seeing more immediately. And for myself, I've actually, my hair is the longest it's ever been. Even when I was 16, I had very long hair. It's even longer than that. And it, it is because my hair is just so much healthier and is able to grow so much longer than it and it was before, and I don't have as much breakage. I don't have as much falling out of hair as well. So when you
0: say eighty percent, that's pretty good. To and you're saying eighty yeah. percent within three to four months, and does that kind of increase as you use the products longer? And what product specifically is this for? Just taking the pill, or is this also just if we're just to use shampoo? Would we see those same results? Yeah.
1: So that particular result is from the clinically effective peptide. And so we use the amount, the same amount that was used in the study for that product. So it, and that amount is in our shampoo, that's in our serum. We're about to launch a scalp scrub. It's the same amount in the scalp scrub. And so what we are doing right now is we are studying that more to understand that, right? So there's only been four clinical studies ever done on gray hair in the history the world since 1940. There are two of them were in 1940. And so there's a wow. lot that still needs to be researched and done. Yeah. And so that's is literally our number one focus at the company is the clinical results, the clinical efficacy, and making sure that we can explain to what degree does this work. So we know it works from before and afters, reviews, Jay's clients, anecdotally, like it does work. And now the next phase of the company is understanding exactly your question of like, to what degree, to what percentage, how is that all, all affecting folks? So, so much more to come very soon. Yeah, that's crazy.
0: Not a lot of clinical studies there. No. Well, I've no. tried the product. The shampoo and conditioner are oh. great. The serum is great. And I've been trying the pills, but it's only been a few weeks. So I'm still early in the game yeah, of seeing yeah. results. You give it time. Yeah. 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 I'm putting <laughs> yeah. in my time and we'll Take see 100. what happens <laughs> for these grays because I just keep going blonde. Yeah. I'm like, I'll just cover them and just keep going blonde. And now I'm yeah. like, I'm going to be platinum in like a few months if I don't
1: So <laughs> Well, and I will say that is a great way to hide gray. Jay obviously is much more adept at speaking to this as a hairstylist, but that is a great way. And I mean, it's, it's hard on your hair, but it doesn't touch your scalp. So it's actually less potentially toxic than hair dye because you use foils. And so yeah. that is a way to do it. There's glosses that you can use. Like there's ways to also deal with gray hair that aren't as intense. And we actually hope too, that we, everybody says, like, are you anti-gray? We're like, oh my gosh, no, we would never use those words because we want people to embrace gray a little bit more. And especially for women, it's like you get canceled as soon as you turn gray. It's like, why? I mean, this <laughs> is a natural process that happens to everybody. And men can be silver foxes. But although, by the way, men do care about going gray and they're 35% of our customer base. So they do care about it. But women, it is. It's, it's just a stricter sort of societal thing, right? To not show your gray hair. And so we hope the next generation and the younger generation is more accepting of it and okay with it and showing that it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe have a little bit more control over that process.
0: So what are some of the challenges that you've faced in building the business? You guys launched in 2021. What are some of the things that you didn't see coming that you have had to work through? And yeah, any lessons yeah. learned that you can share for the listeners?
1: Yeah, well, I think this is my third personal startup, and it's the 12th company that I've been involved in. And so I have some learnings from experiencing what challenges I've had in the past with other brands and companies. And so in in building it, we tried to mitigate as much as we could for any sort of unknowns or focus on unit economics from the beginning. We really tried to set the business up for success, which I think we've done a, a very good job at. We launched post-pandemic. So people are always like, oh, iOS settings, like how is that affecting your business? We didn't know a world. I mean, I knew a world of that before with my other companies, but we didn't know. We just are starting from zero from that. But it's still a challenge. It's like you really need to pay attention to CPAs. And we're trying a lot of different social platforms. So we're not putting all our eggs in one basket. And I think for us, it was really understanding how challenging it is for the education piece of it and getting the story, like even just explaining what we do. It doesn't take just a 10-second ad, right? It takes a few minutes to explain it and really get people to understand what we're doing. And so that's the challenge for us in this world where everybody's scrolling through TikTok and they have like two seconds to grab attention. How do you then grab their attention, but then keep them engaged for a few minutes just to, to understand it all? And so that's been a, a fun challenge because it's also when you're creating a new category, that's this really cool opportunity to do something different and novel. And I think fascinating, of course, because I'm doing it. But, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting world we live in with very short attention spans.
0: Definitely. And what has the fundraising process been like? Have you guys raised any capital? And what has your experience been so far?
1: Yeah, so I initially put money into the business to get it going and to launch it, I also gave out equity in the beginning instead of cash because I wanted also to have people who believe in the business and the, the vision and the long game. And we raised a little bit of friends and family in November of 2021. So we had already been in business for about nine months. So people could see, okay, this, you know, you have revenue, this is working, this, there's product market fit, like they're not just investing in a concept, especially a new you know, category and concepts. So we did that. And then we, we raised institutional capital in November of last year, which we all know that fundraising environment has been very difficult. But we were very unique and I'm very grateful that we were actually able to raise twice as much as we set out to with some great investors who really believe in this concept and this idea and seeing that it's working and we have traction and there are metrics there that business makes a lot of sense to invest in. And then we're using most of that capital for, like I said, R&D, clinical studies, the science behind it, the ingredients. We're looking at a new ingredient that we are most likely to add very soon and hasn't even existed in the market yet. So there's a lot of cool things to come. And that, of course takes money and it also takes time. So we have investors who are very willing to take the long game with us. They're not looking to like see some exit in a year or something. Um, You know, this is going to take a minute and everybody's on board with that, which is a really, it's a good place.
0: What were some of the challenges that you faced? So I just want to get to the, I want to hear where it hurt. What can we learn yeah, yeah. from the lessons learned? Where were the hard lessons learned? Yeah. Building the business, like what mistakes have you made and or what feedback have you gotten that you've had to correct? Or just in general, what are some tough times?
1: Yeah, so the fundraising is not easy. I mean, I don't think ever it's easy, especially when you're a woman and especially when it's a tough economic environment. So we spoke to, I think my Excel's, spreadsheet now is over 140 investors or people. So we had a lot of conversations and it took a lot of time and it, a lot of effort on everybody's part. And, you know, at times it's like, why are we even doing this? Like, is this worth mm-hmm. it? Like, can we get through this? But yeah. I, I also knew from, again, my past experiences, like that's normal and that's common and it yeah. sucks, but it it is what you have to kind of get through. And mm-hmm. we got through that and onto the other side and I know, I mean, I wish I had to like knock on wood, everything's been going pretty well. And so we haven't had any major like crises. I mean, you know, supply chain issues, of course, we have encountered. But again, I think this is what I hate to sound like a broken record unless it sounds silly, but I'm a 42 year old founder, right? So I'm not 22 and just starting as I was with my other business and not really knowing what I was doing, but I think it's all these life experiences and the challenges and mistakes you've made in the past help you so Mm -hmm. much as an older founder to be like, okay, I know what not to do. Let me try to avoid those mistakes this time around.
0: Right, definitely. And out of 140 investors, I'm sure a huge majority said no. And how long did it take? (laughs) How many said no? And how long did it take to actually fundraise?
1: Yeah. So no investor ever says no. They always say not now, or this isn't a fit for our fund, whatever. So, like, you'll never get a no, which is smart of them. But a lot of people passed, of course. But we started the conversations with Female Founders Fund in May. They actually reached out to us as a customer of the product, so which I love because then people get it and they understand it. It's not like something I have to explain. And so that was May, and then we closed in November. So seven months was process so it was it was certainly not a quick process and that and, was your first yeah, time but it fundraising worth was, it right was that your first yeah, time well fundraising? no so I've, I've done a lot of fundraising for other brands and other companies so the first time I fundraised is for my own personal company so i had been down that
0: so you had a little bit of a network before, before that yeah. to, to reach out to that's always helpful yes than having yes. to cold email everybody
1: no yeah that's really a challenge I mean, I think my advice for people is like, make sure you get a warm intro, find somebody who knows somebody at the fund, do your research, know if they invest in your category, in your space, in the stage that you're in, you can set yourself up for, for more success that way and just kind of narrowing that and, and limiting your time that you're spending doing these calls because it's it's a lot of energy and effort and putting your deck together and doing the different Zooms and in-person meetings. And it's, you know, it can take you away from the business obviously too. So you want to make sure that you're spending enough time focusing on on the business as well.
0: And what about discovering new investors? I always think that's kind of really tough for a lot of founders. I feel like by now I have a ton of different databases to reach into. But when you're first starting out or you don't have a network, it's really hard to kind of uncover who is out there to pitch and who to try to get an intro to and who could be a potential fit. So are there resources that you have found that you use to try to get access or just kind of learn about new investors?
1: Yeah, I think the best thing you can do is look at the companies that you admire and like and are doing well and go to Crunchbase and Google search and find out who their investors are. Mm-hmm. And then go onto those investors' websites and look at their portfolio companies and see if your company kind of fits in with that thesis and that mix. And then talk to other founders. I mean, oh my gosh, that's the best resource is to create relationships, friendships with other founders and ask them, you know, do you like your investors? What are the challenges? What do you not like about them? And who would you recommend? I mean, I had such a fortunate experiences that I know the founders of Lola. And they were so kind and just introducing me to their top five investors. And it was like, that just saved me hours and hours of time, research, energy efforts. And so create those relationships. Again, I mean, it's like, I'm 42. So I've had like many decades of creating relationships and Talking to people and never underestimate the power. And I hate the word networking because it's not. I like to use the word like friendship. Like you're creating these relationships with people. You're not just using them to get to something. It's you have to think about it more authentically and organically. Mm-hmm. And go to founder events and do those cocktail hours and and meetings and reach out to people. And the worst that can happen is they don't get back to you. Then you're just you're at the same point you were before sending out an email to someone. And founders are people who are like willing to talk to you and share your experience. And it's always flattering to get an email from somebody being like, I really admire what you've built and what you've done. I'd love to just hear from you who your favorite investors are, who you think I should talk to. Like, That's a really easy ask of somebody. So
0: Yeah. Amazing. And so before we wrap up here, what is some final advice you have for entrepreneurs in the trenches right now, or those thinking of taking the leap into entrepreneurship? And lastly, what is next for Array? What can we see coming soon?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, again, the advice I think I would do is just build your network. Don't think of it as a chore, like think of it as, as part of your job. But hopefully a part that's enjoyable. And that's Fun. Think of it as that, it's not like a chore. And it's sometimes harder for introverted. I'm like an extrovert introvert. I, I'm a little bit of both, but I think you can strengthen that muscle by doing it more often and really getting yourself out there, especially post pandemic. I think it's so important for everybody to get back to a place where they're meeting in person and talking to people and do that work. Make sure you know you're learning from your current experience, even if it's a job you don't necessarily enjoy or you're not at the place that you want to be right now, I guarantee you you're learning something and it will be valuable. And you'll look back and be like, oh, that's why I had that experience. That's why I went through that. It was to get me to this point that I'm at now. And so take that all in. And then I think for Array, it's a lot of exciting things. We have the scalp scrub I mentioned coming out in May. We also have a vegan collagen deep conditioning coming out in the fall. And then, yes, it's really focusing on the research and the science and the new ingredients. It's always our focus here at Array, but really, really fun stuff coming up.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Allison, for sharing your inspiring story. Thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.